0: Welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs as well as CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or CFRC Podcast. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing now. A couple of weeks ago, we actually had our three minute thesis final, and we're very fortunate to have not just in the final but in the heats as well lots of students who gave it a go. And so, we were very lucky one of those students is coming on GradChat today. So, it's great to have you. And I'm going to introduce you to Paulina Bleer, who is doing a PhD in nursing under the supervision of Dr. Pilar Camargo Plazas. Welcome to GradChat, Paulina.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Great to have you on the show. But before we talk about your research, can you talk a bit about what it is like to do a PhD online and not on campus? Because nursing used to be, PhD used to be on campus and now, of course, it's online. So, you know, what's
1: that like and
0: why do you want to go back to do a PhD in
1: nursing? <laughs> Absolutely. It's been a really incredible experience. My we started in 2019, and at that time, we were quite fortunate. This is before COVID, just right yeah. before <laughs> We had a hybrid um, sort of format. So there was what they call uh, on-site residencies, and then the coursework itself, majority, was online. And so right. in 2019, I met my classmates Uh, on-site at Queens. So it was really nice. It was for a couple of weeks and we got to connect and get to know each other. And then we all went our separate ways and continued the coursework online. And then we met again the following semester on-site and and did some training and we got some information and some education for some of the courses that we were doing. And then we went our separate ways and continued our coursework. And then COVID hit, of of course. (laughs) And then it became all online exclusively. Yes. But the But the program itself in the beginning was meant to be this sort of on-site online, which actually worked, I think, for us really well. At least I got to meet my colleagues. I got to know them. And I already was familiar in working with them. And so that really helped. So that experience actually has not been bad. It was right. really is really great. I don't know how it would have been if we never met at all. Um, I think that would have been maybe a little more challenging. But we were quite fortunate that uh, we got to meet in person a couple times before COVID hit. And so that experience has been great. And to answer the question, why did I pursue (laughs) a PhD in nursing? I get asked that a lot. So I'll give a little bit of my clinical background. So I did my undergraduate um, in nursing at Ryerson University worked in Toronto, Toronto General Hospital for a few years. And then went back to school and did my master slash nurse practitioner, you can do like a combined program. Right. So I became a nurse practitioner, I was working for a few years, maybe about three, four years. And then I thought, I think I want to do more school. And so <laughs> that's when I pursued my PhD. So really the impetus for pursuing it is just really this desire for knowledge I guess Um, I've always been curious and I love learning and I've always been a student so even when I was working I was taking courses I was doing something academic I have to say you know I did a diabetes education certificate course I did a research training course so I was always in school so this was like a natural pathway for me to say what else can I learn and how can I learn that and the PhD just seemed like the best student route for me to pursue that higher education beyond my master's. I've always thought anyone
0: in the health industry, particularly if you're practicing, that that you must see so many things like processes and, and ways of doing things or things you go, well, why haven't we fixed that yet? Which must help you with that curiosity of, is there something I can do to sort of make a change as okay. opposed to just doing what I've been told to do so I, I, I understand why you might want to do that as a nurse because you, you're always learning so much and you see, you're, you're right there you see what's going on mm-hmm. in different areas so uh, that's nice But you're not just doing that either. I mean you've got a family as well. (laughs) And I know with you know, we just had one of our writing camps which you were a part of online, admittedly, but you were still a part of it. And uh, I know it was an opportunity for you to go out and see some of the local coffee shops (laughs) or try them all out. But it must be difficult too, doing particularly a PhD. You know, coming home from, because I'm assuming you're still working, and then having to worry about your what you need to do for your PhD, but you've still got a family to look after
1: right it's interesting because both my babies were born during my phd (laughs) so they're even young so it's even harder right i came to a phd child free (laughs) single single child free and i ended up um, with two kids in the midst of it so talk about just piling it on but i have to say though that my faculty has been extremely supportive. The Department of Nursing has been extremely supportive. And so I've got I- incredible support that I've been able to manage to continue with, along with along alongside my cohort and make progress actually in the midst of all of this. My supervisor literally, I wouldn't say held my hand, but I would say she guided me quite well Excellent. in getting, getting me into my defense, my proposal defense. And I was... I was pregnant at the time and I had a child and I wouldn't have been able to get to that path if it wasn't for her. And so she saw the end goal and she just said, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Uh And we got there. And so without, without the support of my supervisor and, and the nursing uh, faculty in the department I don't think I would have made it this far because I've, I've heard of how it can be challenging mm-hmm. um, if you don't have good supports um, sometimes people take come out of the program or they map take a very extended break but I've had really good support within the faculty and of course within my family as well both ends and so that's why I think I've been I've managed to make it to my fourth year and sort of t- looking towards the end I can sort of start to see the end of this process. But
0: I think it's very kind that you said that. I mean, the thing is, nurses are nurses, right? And they're very compassionate people. And uh, so I think even your faculty, who are all nurses and themselves, uh, understand
1: how to support each other, put it that way. Yeah, I think so. I agree. Yeah,
0: 100%. So we should get on to your research topic because that's why we're
1: here. <laughs> sure.
0: And so uh, your research topic is about the experience of living with diabetes in Liberia. So do you want to just give us a brief overview of what that is? And then I've got some really interesting questions for you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, sure. I guess I could maybe start with my positionality, because that might give Mm -hmm. some context to why am I a student at Queens studying Diabetes in Liberia, so that's yes. awesome, like it asked. and so I'm Liberian by birth. I was born in Liberia okay. and immigrated to Canada when I was about ten years old or so uh, with my family. And when I was a nursing student, my undergraduate, I started going back to Liberia. So I was going back to Liberia, doing a lot of work, volunteer work, medical missions, just really giving my time in hospital clinics, orphanages, etc. So I was spending a lot of time there. I was going annually at some point, and in my time spent, particularly volunteering hospitals and clinics, I started to see a lot of cases of diabetes, but particularly what interested me was these delayed presentations of patients that I would see as a volunteer who would come in and get diagnosed with a diabetic foot ulcer, need an amputation perhaps, and this is the first time they're hearing about that they're diabetic. They, they, they didn't know. Uh, they had uh, never seen a physician. They've never seen anybody for this um and so that was really That really piqued my interest and I I got really concerned. I wanted to know more about what is going on. Why why aren't people aware about diabetes? Why aren't people being cared for? Why isn't preventive measures in place? You know, why aren't diagnostics programs in place? So that sort of piqued my interest. So when I was pursuing my PhD, giving my global health interest, I knew I wanted to do a bit more. I wanted my research to focus on that particular population in Liberia and on this particular condition of diabetes. And so that gives you some context as to why I'm pursuing this. So, so it really is like a passion project, I would say. And so to give you a little bit of my project, so diabetes is a really growing public health concern in Liberia. You know, the estimates of diabetes in Liberia, it's some say, you know, depends on where you look. The International Diabetes Federation's recent report, 2021, noted that it's about 2.1% of population, but this is a gross Underestimation because you know Liberia doesn't have good surveillance mechanism and infrastructure in place, and so there definitely is concern that the prevalence of diabetes is much higher than what is reported, right? And certainly, if you look at the data from the International Diabetes Federation, the number of undiagnosed people living with diabetes is about 50 percent, and so they're estimating that of that percentage. 50% 50% of those don't even know they have diabetes. So that just gives you a sense of the public health concern, of the great public health concern in the country. And because Liberia is a low-income country and there are significant socioeconomic challenges within the country, mainly because of this, uh, what Liberia experienced, which just the 14-year civil war that started in 1999 and then in 2003. And then the most recent West African Ebola virus outbreak in 2014, 2015. And so that has left a a significant dent on the economic, social structure of the country. And so people living with diabetes have significant challenges accessing resources. So I wanted to understand what is it like to live with diabetes? Because I do believe data drives change and... I wouldn't be able to advocate for this population if I don't have data to say this is the experience, right? And so, given my interest as a critical quality researcher and wanting to understand this phenomena, so I set out to pursue my PhD and to investigate this. And so, so
0: Paula, before we go further, can you just explain to everyone what is the actual difference between type one diabetes and type two diabetes? Yeah, sure.
1: So. Type 1 diabetes is marked by insulin deficiency, commonly diagnosed in childhood, which is why you may have, you know, heard the term juvenile diabetes. And then type 2 diabetes is really characterized by insulin resistance, not deficiency, and dip- typically uh, develops in adulthood. Now, looking at global statistics, about 90 to 95% of people living with diabetes in the world, and that is not different from Liberia, is due to type 2 diabetes. And so type 2 diabetes is the main driver of diabetes globally and certainly within the Liberian context.
0: And you said it's not insulin dependent, but it's more on environment and living?
1: Yeah, so type 2 diabetes is characterized by insulin resistance. And some of the risk factors for that is related to lack of physical activity, rather diet. Um, so so nutrient dense foods. There's also a risk factor related to smoking, and also a risk factor related to alcohol abuse. And so there's certainly you know modifiable risk factors that also increase your risk for insulin resistance. Hence. Type two diabetes.
0: Okay. Oh, that that's good to know because I think it was important to know the difference, right, between one and two. Because I always thought number one, as you said, is more right. the junior population, so to speak. Right.
1: Correct. Yeah.
0: So that's great. Well, thank you for sharing that. And and.
1: Um, so which which one is more prevalent in Liberia? Based on the reports I've read, the most prevalent one would be type 2 diabetes. And the reason why type 2 is more prevalent in Liberia has to do with, um, and this is a long history, but in any case, there's theory that globalization, economic development, particularly in urban regions of the country. So like my study is done in Monrovia. Has led to physical inactivity has led to uh, indulgement in more high fats high carbohydrate foods, more fast food high processed foods has led to more smoking has led to more alcohol abuse, which are all significant risk factors for diabetes. So those factors have also contributed to the rising numbers of that type two diabetes in mm. in Liberia and certainly in the sub-Saharan African region. So other neighboring countries within the sub-Saharan African region certainly are experiencing that, and that has all been attributed to the nutritional transitions, the demographic changes, right, and right. So all. All really related to the way the world has changed and the effects of globalization on these. Well, countries. we all
0: know having a sedentary lifestyle and not, and eating all those highly processed, highly full of wrong sugars and and what have you um, is not good for any of us. And that's really interesting, which kind of makes sense. So is. Is it the, the lifestyle is the main instigator then or is it happening more to a specific age group in Liberia? because nice. like, as kids they're being more active but as we get older and we particularly in the city we get a job I mean look at us where I'm sitting at a desk here doing sedentary work when usually I like to be out and about doing things. So is it a certain age group that it suddenly
1: hits you know like in the late 30s, 40s, 50s? So based on the data from Liberia and it's quite limited it's it certainly I guess I if I'm speaking to if I could speak to type 2 that type 1 diabetes typically is is hitting in Liberia a uh, younger group um and it typically does and so and that's why it was formerly known as juvenile diabetes uh certainly but it is hitting a you know a younger population there was a study that was just recently done and looking at type 2 diabetes type 1 diabetes people living with type 1 diabetes their experiences in the the population of the age group of those patients were between 10 and 25. And so it is so and that was only that was the only study I could find on diabetes type 1 diabetes in Liberia. So it, it certainly is like here hitting a, the young population. Uh, young people type two is certainly hitting an older population. And there is data for that. And and that is global, of course, age does play a role just in the sense that we are living longer. And so we're living longer. And so we're living longer with chronic diseases, but that but certainly particularly in the urban setting within Liberia. So this is Monrovia, which is the capital city of Liberia. And what is interesting in Monrovia is that Liberia has a population of 5.2 million approximately. And in Monrovia, about two and a half million people live in that one city. And so it's it's overpopulated. It's it's vastly populated. And then the rest of the population are kind of in the rural villages and rural regions. And so what is happening in Liberia is quite, in Monrovia, is quite condensed. Um, so, of course, there's a lot more taxis to get people around. So people aren't walking like in the rural villages where you would walk nice. from here to school to work and back because there aren't any transportation per se. It's very limited. In yes. Monrovia, there's taxis all over the place. And so you just hop on one to the other that is playing a role there's more fast food chains and so that's contributing as well um in in Liberia they have they don't have Burger King but they have what they call King Burger it's like a right it's a Burger King but they have a different thing they they reverse the name it's not a franchise of Burger King but it's called King Burger and so they have similar things you would find in Burger King burgers fries etc there's a lot more pop-up of fast food restaurants um alike Um, And so people aren't moving, people aren't eating well, there's definitely higher rates of smoking and alcohol abuse. And so all of that has contributed Mm -hmm. to what we're seeing in this growing concern around type 2 diabetes in in the region. So
0: so tell us a little bit of how you're researching this. What kind of methods are you using? Because you you clearly got a lot of information that you could collect. I mean, my, my first thing would be, for down the track is looking at the difference between those in rural areas and those in urban areas of Liberia because it would be pretty obvious the difference I would imagine Mm -hmm. so so how have you because I I noticed in your little briefing that you gave me you're doing things more on interviews and things like that which is Mm -hmm. a bit time consuming but can you explain the method that you're working and why you've chosen
1: that? So just briefly my for the purposes of my study and sort of my research goals, I wanted to choose a method that would tell stories um, that would produce narratives on people's experiences. I wanted to get, um, I wanted a method that really got to the human experience, Mm -hmm. if you will. And so because that was my goal, um, my methodology is critical hermeneutics. And I'll just briefly describe what that is. So basically critical hermeneutics is, a methodology where you are critiquing and analyzing the social, economic, political, historical impact of a phenomenon on people's experiences. So you're looking at all those different aspects and you're critiquing it and you're really entrenching all of that is this whole element of power, looking at power and how power influences how people live in the human experience. Right. And so that's an overarching methodology. And then the method I wanted to... Um, collect my data. If I wanted to use collect my data. I chose photo voice and I came across photo voice a bit early in my, in the beginning of, of my training, the first couple of years of coursework. And I really got drawn to it. And I thought, you know what, this is a great method to collect data. One, it's innovative. It's new. It's creative. It really speaks. You can get both stories. You can get photographic data, interview data. So you kind of, you're getting this data triangulation, if you will, because you've got photos, you've got interview transcripts and you kind of can bring that together. So I really nice. love that. The second thing I really liked about photo voice and using photographs or photography was that I felt it was a really empowering method. Um, because participants are in, in, in my methodology or in my worldview, I should say participants are knowledge co-creators, right? So we're creating knowledge Mm -hmm. together. And so they're part of this process, but in this way, they're really part of it because they're going out there and you're giving them cameras and they're getting, they're taking photos that represent their experience. And then they're bringing this back to you and you're talking about it. And so you're you're co-creating knowledge. So I really, really love that piece. And then the third reason why I wanted to use this method was just because I felt that this would be a really, this would be a very decolonizing method way of, of approaching research. And the reason why I I'm, I'm using that term was, you know, if you, if you look at the history of Southern Africa and the history of colonization, all of that, it's, it's, it's really important that when you're doing research that you're liberating and that you're not perpetuating these same uh, colonistic practices. And so typically mm-hmm. in, in sub-Saharan Africa, this is not just Liberia, people within the region were always photographed. And not so much in a positive way, you know, about these different campaigns of, of you know, of people living in slums or living in, in huts with no money and no food and, you know, poverty. Maybe if you type in poverty, the, the photos, you know, that describe this population were yeah. so negative. And so I wanted to give... And so, and these were taken typically by Westerners or sort of like, you know, with that cult- colonistic uh, worldview. And so I felt by giving participants cameras to take photos, you were giving them the power because they could take photos that they felt represented their oh, life situation and not the other way around. So, for those reasons, was why I was just drawn to photo voice. And I thought this is an excellent methodology for this research, for this context.
0: So you actually have to give, you had to give them the, the cameras. Did you go over there or how how did you do that?
1: So this was during COVID. <laughs> my, my, plan, my plan initially was to go to Liberia. So this is my plan all along. Go to Liberia, set this <laughs> up, give them cameras, interview them. And then COVID happened and I had to rejig. So, and it's interesting because at this time, the plan was, do I change course and maybe look at a different population in Canada, because going over there, all the international restrictions, as you remember, were just brave and everybody was scared. And so do I change my population and just, you know, do something else or do I stick with this? Because I was really passionate about this. So I decided to stick with it. And in sticking with it, I decided to pursue this virtually. And so I partnered with a university in Liberia and I felt that was a good partnership. It was an apolitical organization. You know, a lot of what is happening in healthcare in Liberia, there is some uh, sort of political ramifications as to why things are not working. And so I want participants to be comfortable wherever they were. And I felt our university that had no association to the local government would be a best place. And so I partnered with them and they provided the conference room a space and so then and they helped me with recruitment and so they went to the local hospitals and recruit and put my flyers around and right. and spoke to participants and recruited them and then participants came to this particular university but there was a okay. room allocated for us and then we would do the zoom interviews and so, which was nice because with Zoom, I could pull out the pictures. And so, they took the pictures, sent it to me beforehand, and then I could pull right. the pictures up, and then we would discuss the photos. And so, that was how I was able to collect my data virtually. That's fantastic. That's yeah. and that's a lovely collaboration
0: too with the it's, other university. So, well, so that so that's a great way of doing it. So, with the data that you've collected, I know to make a difference in any place. Yes, as you mentioned at the beginning, having the data to back you up is really, really important. So, first of all, what are some of the recommendations that you can tell so far? But how are you going to make those recommendations be listened to by the people that can change policy when they're going to say, but you only looked at 10 people?
1: Right. So, yeah, that's a great question. And I just want to preface by saying, you know, with qualitative research. It's not about numbers, right? So we're looking at data, we're presenting stories and narratives about a phenomenon of interest. And we're saying, this is what this phenomenon looks like within this population. Right. At this time that I took this data, it is not to generalize, not to say everyone with diabetes is experiencing this situation, but it is to say these are some of the issues or these are some of the solutions or these are some of the strengths, limitations, whatever they are that I collected that participants told me in relation to this phenomenon. So it's not to generalize, it's to provide context and everything is contextual, right? Research is so whether you're doing qualitative or quantitative it's all contextual research right it's it depends on when you do it with what population at what time when it's done so that all you know that's all contextual so in saying that and i'll just briefly go back to some of the results in my study so there are a couple of things that i learned from these interviews from the interviews and focus groups with my research participants when it came to the challenges with diabetes and then i'll go into the solutions. so right. participants mm-hmm. told me that they had significant challenges of food insecurity It was a massive challenge and this came across all 10 participants. Not one, every single one of them spoke about food, access to food being a major issue. And this is really interesting because when it comes to diabetes management, diet is paramount. Mm -hmm. Good diet is paramount. Healthy eating, healthy centric diet is paramount to management. And if you don't have access to diabetes friendly foods, that could really have an impact on how you manage the disease. And so this was really key and important. So were they saying that because they didn't have the money to buy the good
0: food, only the bad food? Is that what they're saying? Is that why they were food insecure?
1: Yes. Yeah, so sometimes were- when
0: people say food insecure, it's because they don't even have a dollar to be able to go and buy anything. But are you saying in this instance, it's they don't have access to good, healthy food?
1: It was along a long spectrum of insecure, food insecurity. So with food insecurity, there is a spectrum. So you can go from, you know, occasionally... Not having access to food or hunger. Right. If you and so once in a while you may not have access to food, but generally you have you have good access, or it may not be the foods you want, but you have access versus I did not, not eat have any. today. Yeah. I have nothing in my fridge. I did not eat today. So yeah. so across my 10 participants, there was variety within that, right? right. So some people right. experience hunger like in that was quite you know difficult to hear and some participants had the money to buy food just not the diabetes friendly foods that they wanted to eat because it was inexpensive and so so there was a mix across some participants in terms of the experience but all of that you know encompasses the definition of food insecurity in terms of access yeah so that was one that was one food insecurity came strong the second piece that came strong was in regards to lack of access to healthcare resources. And this nice. is, you know, this is regarding medications that these medications having not having access to it, not having access to supplies like glucometers that they need to check their blood sugars to be able to manage their diabetes. Nice. Uh, so that came, that came across strongly. I was very intentional in my recruitment to recruit participants from publicly funded hospitals and not private hospitals because Liberia does have both and in private hospitals you pay out of pocket. So there is sort of like a you know, there's an issue of um resources if you if you if I was to recruit from a from a private hospital in terms of, you know, looking at inequities. And so I recruited yes. from a publicly funded hospital because I wanted to ensure that these Are about the majority. Right, exactly. So that where most people would go, and and I wasn't I wasn't looking at a facility that was you know private and charging people out of the pocket. So even with recruiting participants who mostly accessed it public from the hospital, which is supposed to be relatively free, and you're not spending out of pocket, participants still has significant issues with access to medications and supplies for diabetes, and this really just had to do with what I interpret. As the lack of diabetes on the health agenda. And so participants spoke a lot about, and and this is, uh, there's a historical context to this as well. In Liberia and in some of, in in many South South Saharan African countries, communicable diseases, including HIV, Ebola, tuberculosis, malaria have been at the top of the agenda for a good reason, good reason right, for many years. Yes. And then communicable diseases have been at the bottom of the agenda. And so a lot of the funding that comes from development projects like the World Health Organization or USAID and those things tend to go to these projects, you know. Right. And so what so what has happened when it comes to diabetes and other chronic illnesses? Is is not at the top of the agenda. So participants will often talk about in Liberia, we have a clinic for HIV, rightly so. We have a clinic for tuberculosis, where you can go get your medications, get your health care, it's all in one center. But for oh, diabetes, there's no clinic, there's no service. We have to go to an outpatient department. There's not a specialist. We just see a, a, a GP and they might write us a script. We'll go to the publicly funded pharmacy. And they will say we're out of supply. So we're low on supplies for diabetes medications, but they're never low on supplies for medications for HIV AIDS. and tuberculosis and things because the perception is that this is a bigger threat. That's a big challenge. And so that's what is happening in Liberia and many of the Sub-African countries. But what has happened now is underneath that threat of communicable diseases, non-communicable diseases are really creeping up, right? And so right. if we don't start looking at it, you know, in the next couple of years, we're going to start seeing more of that because we're not doing anything to prevent it. It's just, you know, the, the rates are just increasing. We're just kind of watching. Can I ask a question
0: um, in the health system there? Do people visit their GP once a year? I mean, because one of the problems is, is apart from the fact that the medications and things aren't available for di- to help with diabetes, But you mentioned that sometimes people don't even know they've got diabetes until they've got major symptoms, whereas if, you know, the usual preventative is better than cure, if we could find out earlier that this particular person could be susceptible to diabetes if they don't change some of their lifestyle habits, um, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it's more than just that, but those kind of things. So, you know, where comes the part of diagnosing
1: earlier in in, in all of this. So that's a great question, and I could probably spend <laughs> session talking. We can make about, this into a podcast as well. <laughs> talking to the Liberian healthcare system because ooh, that really gets me going. But I will say that Liberia has, is a is a country that has been through a lot, and you know there there are significant challenges in the country for many many reasons. But one of the things that is certainly lacking in terms of the healthcare system is primary healthcare for yeah. sure. And so you've kind of hit the nail on the head. If if you will, in terms of, you know, this is a major gap and this is why there is such a mismanagement of of diseases and chronic conditions, because with chronic conditions, you need long-term follow-up. You have to keep seeing the patients. You have to keep seeing them. This is primary care. And so because the healthcare system has been so focused on acute response right on sort of like a narrow response to acute illness so mm-hmm. the healthcare system is is really in, in in one of my papers i write this the healthcare system has been built to respond to acute illness so you come on mm-hmm. malaria will give you anti-malaria drugs will treat you will treat you with all the for your, all your symptoms and you go home malaria's is cured by that's how the healthcare system is built right you come with a diagnosis of diabetes We'll give you a prescription, but that's not it because it's a no, chronic illness. So you've got to come back, but the system is not built for you to come back. Yeah. So then you end up coming in, you go to emerge, you go to an outpatient clinic. You're not really sure what to do. You're kind of managing things are not working out, but the system isn't built for that. So nobody knows what to do with you because the system is built for people who have this very acute illness, who treat you and you go home and we never see you again. A mom right. comes deliver the baby mom as well. You go home again right so so because it's it's in and out as opposed to yeah pretty much in and out come in get your treatment get out but for you to be seen and follow up in the long term the system has not been built for that and so that's the challenge with these chronic illnesses like diabetes is difficult to manage so this is kind of like the
0: third recommendation that you you're looking at right is how can our local governments and cities and things prioritize illnesses like
1: diabetes earlier and be able to support that that community right so yeah so one of my recommendations as you said is looking to have diabetes moved up and on I don't know if it's even on the agenda but either if it's on to move up a little bit or certainly to go on the public health agenda uh their health agenda that they have and one of the ways I plan to do this is by writing a policy brief so right. that's part of my sort of my thesis writing that document, that, that large document that I'm working on. So I want to write a policy brief. and I'm hoping once that's completed, I, I would be able to share that policy brief with local governments and international partners to see what we can do collectively to ease the burden of diabetes in Liberia.
0: Really, really important work, Paulina, because diabetes is not just restricted to Liberia. It, it is a global problem. Right, and uh, i'm sure there's lots of practices around the globe that uh, communities that don't have the resources and the support system in place can learn from as well as from from what you've been put forward on your research and but the, the hard thing of course is getting to the people on the ground to make them go yep yeah, okay we may not see it right now, but it's only going to get worse. So, we need let's nip it in the bud now and, and set ourselves up so it's not even worse to, in 10 years' time. Because you right. see, I mean, every, most politicians look at today, you know, what can we do right. just do today to make me look good? Right, well, you exactly. know, this, this is a long term strategy, it can't Absolutely. just be a, an in and out of exactly. you fix, go home. This has to be a long term strategy. So, right. uh, your policy paper, I'm sure, is going to be super important for them and and perhaps also other communities, both in Liberia and other, like you said, sub-Sahara or even other regions of the world.
1: Yeah, exactly. To consider. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, we're going to have to call it quits there. I mean, we we could easily keep on talking, but uh, I really do appreciate you coming on and, and sharing with us this bad situation that the globe is in in terms of with diabetes and how our lifestyles have changed so much when we did a lot more activity and we ate better foods and things and diabetes is the result of us not um, you know ignoring what we used to do and thinking let's just be faster and faster and sort of taking shortcuts but unfortunately shortcuts as we know Aren't always effective for our own health. So uh, great that you that you're doing this, and I wish you the best of luck with finishing it off. And I'm I'm sure the department is really happy to have you here and doing something a little bit different too on, on this. And so thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate my time here. Excellent. And so that's it, everyone. A Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download this podcast tomorrow on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or CFRC Podcast. Just type in a Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.